Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast this week coming to you live from Cardiff. My name is Dan Schreiber, and I am sitting here with Anna Chazinski, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, James. Okay, my fact this week is that the oldest football cup competition in Spain is the Copa del Rey. Each year, the winner gets the name engraved in the trophy in Comic Sans. (laughs) The greatest font of them all. (laughs) So, I don't know if you know who invented Comic Sans. Anyone? Vincent Conair. And he did an interview recently, and they asked him his favourite times that Comic Sans has been used. So he said that it was in the Copa del Rey, it was in a photo album made by the Vatican, and in the presentation by CERN to announce the discovery of the Higgs boson. Yes. (laughs) But... It wasn't, it wasn't a Vatican... They didn't announce the new Pope in Comic Sans or anything. No, they still did that with the... the smoke. With smoke, yeah, yeah. If you could do the smoke in Comic Sans. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lovely photo album that they gave to the Pope. So it was the Vatican's present to him, and it was all the captions were in. It's the best way to caption a book, Comic Sans. There's no question. You know, he's only ever used it once, he says, Vincent Conner. He said he's used Comic Sans once in his life, it was when I was having trouble changing my broadband to Sky, so I wrote them a letter in Comic Sans complaining, saying how disappointed I was. He got a £10 refund. Yeah, so it's useful. Good. He's, he's, very, um, he's very bullish about it. Like He's done, he's done uh, talks, like a TED Talk or something, saying, I, my name is Vincent Conner, and I've invented the best font in the world. Um, and he's quite, you know, if people don't like it, he's, he pushes back. So he said, if you love Comic Sans, then you don't know anything about typography. But if you hate Comic Sans, then you don't know anything about typography either. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So where should you stand? Ambivalence. I think so, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And he also, he has a thing where he loves the hatred for Comic Sans as well. He really thrives off it and he collects examples of people's furies. So he was doing an interview again and he said, uh, interesting fact, the main designer at Twitter tweeted that the most service space is used by complaints, first about airlines, second, Comic Sans, third, Justin Bieber. And then he says, <laughs> so not even the Bieber can beat Comic Sans. <laughs> but he's said, it, he's said it's like Bieber. Yeah. He has yeah. said it's the Justin Bieber of fonts because lots of people love him, but a lot of people wouldn't say it's the best music. Yeah, that's fair enough. That's an uncontroversial opinion here in Cardiff, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he said that he once went to the Design Museum in London and had to have a bodyguard. (laughs) (laughs) Did he, hell? Well, he said that. I don't know. Maybe he was joking. But um, just an interesting fact, um, his boss at Microsoft when he did that was Rob Norton, who was the son of Mary Norton, who wrote The Borrowers. It's just a fact. And also, after he did Comic Sans, he designed the Ministry of Sound logo. Yeah. Just a few bits of trivia. There's this thing about Comic Sans that gets claimed, which is that the reason it's used in schools and teachers like it is because it makes children read better and it's very good for dyslexic children because partly because the writing is very slightly unclear, so it takes you longer to read it. And the theory is that that makes you remember it better. But that's been shown to be bollocks. 
So, <laughs> teachers, don't write in. There is a font called Sans Forgetica, and that was developed last year, which tries to achieve what people claim Comic Sans does. And so that's a typeface. You should look it up. It's quite cool. That's quite difficult to read because it's got lots of gaps in the letters, and it just means you. it takes a bit more concentration to read it. But it is true that your retention of whatever's written there, if it's in Sans Forgetica, is much better. So is it that if you have something important... You should write it in sans forgetica. Yes. Because it feels like quite a risky... If you're writing something important, it's something that people have to read, like an emergency sign or an exit sign. Mm-hmm. And if you're saying you should write it with bits missing so people yeah. really focus on <laughs> it. If it's something you have to remember in future, if it's something you need to know now, then maybe just write it in <laughs> Times New Roman. <laughs> There's this thing just on that about how you read. Um, so when you read, I didn't know this, you're jumping all the time between... Uh, the words and you're <laughs> well, yeah <laughs> otherwise when you read a story you just go once 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 make the leap James make it once upon once upon once upon okay okay no I walked into that and that's fair so you're, you're doing these things called I think it's saccades or saccades oh, yeah. uh, and fixations which is jumps and pauses and if you're reading fluently what you, it turns out you don't really look at the whole word when you read it you look slightly to the left of the middle of the word you're reading really? and, you, and you then sort of you see the immediate letters around it and then you kind of guess the other letters yeah. as you jump from one thing to another that's you, so true that d- is happening right now this is live reading. Welcome. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so in the um, in 2008, um, John McCain, when he was running for president, he chose Optima as his font for his signs uh, because it was the same typeface used on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Oh. So that was his idea. Obama used Gotham, um, which has been described as friendly without being folksy, confident without being aloof. Wow. Which is quite similar to him, isn't it? Which is and crazy because it's like a Gotham villain came into power right after him with Trump. Well, yeah. Actually, Trump's campaign font was called Accidents Grotesque. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, true. That's, ama- that's a designer wow. having a laugh or something, isn't it? That's amazing. Um, you know, there are font detectives. No. <laughs> yeah, there are font detectives. Why? Well, (laughs) I'm looking at us like we could possibly work out what that is. So the font goes missing. Yeah, that would be good if Sans Forgetica just completely disappeared. Yeah. Um, No, it's it's not quite that. It's um it's people who uh, determine whether documents are authentic by analysing the fonts in them. So. So if the Dead Sea Scrolls are in Comic Sans, they're probably not. Exactly. Ah. So this guy, Thomas Finney, uh, he writes all these stories about his cases and he writes them up like they're Sherlock Holmes stories. It's, it's oh, pretty cool. Um, so, in, for example, in 1999, this lawyer got in touch with him because he was looking at a will and he was trying to work out, is this will real or has it been altered? And Finney discovered that the will was dated 1983, but it was printed by a high-res inkjet printer, which wasn't on the market until 1988. Right. So, wow. so that's good. No, that's, that's very good. good. Wow. That's cool. <laughs> but that's that's more like a printer detective, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah it was an extremely poor example from a wide portfolio of his career. <laughs> <laughs> On dead people in fonts, one of the things that the campaign against Comic Sans hates the most. So this is a campaign that's set up by Holly and David Combs or Coombs. So I think we've mentioned before. But they say it just doesn't look great in a lot of places. For instance, says David Combs, a place where it doesn't look great, in my opinion, is on a tombstone. And I have seen a number of those. 
So there are tombstones out there with Comic Sans. Wow. Yeah. There's actually a website you can go to called Comic Sans Criminal, where it sort of lists all of the most heinous crimes of Comic Sans. <laughs> and it asks you, the reader, are you a criminal? And it shows you examples. Do you agree with this kind of thing? And there was a the opening hours for a sex offenders register office. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Sorry, where sex offenders register? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow, okay. And cool. then, um, yeah, there was a defibrillator as well, which just looked really fun. <laughs> <laughs> there is a theory that this sort of, this, the whole reason that Comic Sans became huge is that it was a font that was launched. Um, it was designed for this product called Microsoft Bob, which actually, it ended up not being included with it, but it did get included as a package in uh, Windows 95, I yes. think. And this was the first time that all of us could do typesetting. You know, before that, you needed to go to a designer. And then this, and people have described this as a massive shift in power, you know, democratization of typesetting. It's basically like, um, what's his name? Gutenberg? Mm. It's like the second print revolution. What you're saying is basically when you give people democratic choice, they end up doing something stupid. <laughs> well... <laughs> You wouldn't have said that at our Sunderland gig, would you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to have to move on to our next fact soon. Um, uh. Got a couple of things about just other weird trophy mm. decisions. Mm. Okay. Um, there's a NASCAR Sprint Cup race that's in Martinsville, and their trophy that they give out is a grandfather clock. It's just a <laughs> giant grandfather clock. That's what you win. Um, and that started in 1964. It was, it was given as a prize. Everyone loved it so much. And it's a big thing. It's a big thing to get a grandfather clock until you get too many. There was a guy called Dale Earnhardt Jr. who took home six and didn't really... <laughs> just kept winning. And it got to a point where it's like, do, you, do, do I just throw this one? Wow. This... How are you lifting that up? Well, you can't at the podium, yeah. No. It's, a bit, it's a bit full on. Wow. I like, um, you know, the, there's a trophy that's given out at Ascot Ladies' Day to the owner of the winning racehorse, which is, it's like the main event, really, at Ascot, isn't it? Um, and the trophy is presented by the Queen, but uh, that causes a problem when she wins it. So <laughs> she has won it before, and, and Prince Andrew did step in to play the role of the Queen presenting it to the queen for that. But, but did, he, did he play, which queen did he play? Did he play the presenting <laughs> queen? <laughs> he played the one giving the trophy and then she played the one, well, she was the one receiving the trophy. <laughs> so weird. Uh, just on uh, fonts, just, it's always a good idea to choose the right fonts because um, there's a company called Bell Chic and they had a bag that said, my favourite colour is glitter, um, but they chose the wrong font and it looked like my favourite colour is Hitler. <laughs> Oh, that was a couple of years ago. And then last Christmas, um, Iceland chose the wrong font and appeared to be selling minge pies. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Andy. My fact is, the American product, Chock Full O Nuts, contains no nuts. <laughs> <laughs> it's a coffee product... That, that used to, the firm used to sell nuts and then they, they sold nuts and coffee and then they stopped selling the nuts but they thought well the name is so good that we just have to keep the chock full o nuts name um, <laughs> yeah, on the, actually on the cans sometimes some of the cans it says 1920s we sold nuts 1930s we sold nuts and coffee now we don't sell nuts we just sell coffee but we like our name and 
it, it has a massive disclaimer saying contains no nuts. And yet, every time the firm does any market research on why people might not buy it, people always say, there's probably nuts in it, aren't there? Yeah. It's probably nuts. <laughs> it's chock full of nuts. But it's, but, a new, it's a New York product, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, if you said, if there was a New Yorker near you and you said chock full of nuts, they would say, yeah, I know it has no nuts. And it's a, it's a big thing. It was as soon as they started going out into other cities and countries that that became a problem for them. So they actually existed fine without putting it on. Yeah. They have a picture of the New York skyline as well on their packets, but they don't name it as the New York skyline. And their head of marketing said that it's nice. It works perfectly for us because people in New York see the New York skyline and think this is for me. And then outside of New York, they have no idea what the New York skyline looks like. So they just think, yeah, fine. And he's run focus groups all around America saying, you know, would you object to something that said New York on it? And they all say yes. And then he (laughs) says, why? And they say, oh, I think it beats our sports teams. And that's it. That's the reason they won't eat nuts. (laughs) <laughs> there aren't any nuts in it. <laughs> You've fallen right Just into testing. the tree. <laughs> Have we said what it is? It's, it's a coffee. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's coffee. So it started by a guy called William Black. He rented a little space under a staircase in New York, and, but it was underneath a drugstore, and he wasn't allowed to sell anything that was sold in the drugstore. So he didn't know what to sell, but there was a theater opposite, so he decided to sell nuts. But then when the Great Depression struck, according to the website, nuts seemed too much of a luxury. Wow. And so he had to find something else. Uh, but he had a roasting machine for the nuts. And so he decided to go down to the, to the docks, buy green coffee beans, roast them himself and make coffee. Mm. And sandwiches, right? And sandwiches, yes. And we actually, we spoke a few weeks ago about how sandwiches that no human hand had touched were a selling point in those days because it meant that it hadn't got any germs on it. And he used to sell his sandwiches advertised as untouched by human hands. And even when they were making the sandwiches, they had to do it with tongs. So you had to spread the mayonnaise with one tong and then put the ham on with another and... Actually, they probably do that in cafes still. I don't know anything about hygiene. (laughs) As I said it, I thought that doesn't sound that mad. (laughs) So just sort of product names, basically. Um, This is a big thing, especially in America. So there's a a cereal called Fruit Loops, but fruit is spelled F-R-O-O-T. And there's also Cap'n Crunch with Crunchberries. And these have been the subjects of repeated lawsuits uh, from people who claim, I've been deceived. I thought this was full of fruit and really good for me. Um, And there are whole statements by judges saying things like... um, Here's one from 2009. This court is not aware of, nor has plaintiff alleged the existence of, any actual fruit referred to as a crunchberry. (laughs) Furthermore, the crunchberry is depicted on the box of round, crunchy, brightly coloured cereal balls. So far as this court has been made aware, there is no such fruit growing in the wild or occurring naturally in any part of the world. (laughs) You've got to be so careful, though, because Red Bull got sued in 2014 um, for the fact that they don't actually give you wings. There was a proper... No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come it on. Was a, it was a mixture of... A, that was one guy who was part of the court case who said, I didn't actually grow any wings. The rest said it claims that it gives you this great energy and it gives you these boosts. And so they actually had to pay out a huge amount of money, um, including $10 to every U.S. consumer who'd bought the drink since 2002 if they wrote in. No really? Way. Yeah. I remember there was once some sausages sold in Wales called dragon sausages that had to be taken off because they didn't contain any dragons. Yeah. Is that true? That's true, yeah. It would be very what? disappointing for the Cardiff audience. <laughs> <laughs> Thought you'd been eating dragons all these years. Um, there's a hair product in, I think in the US, called Rogaine, and it was originally called Regain, and then the FDA, the Food and Drugs Administrator, nixed that because they said you can't call it Regain because obviously it doesn't work because hair regrowth products don't work. Wow. So they had to change the vowels. Mm. There was a tattoo artist in London 
whose salon was called Prick. <laughs> he was called Henry Haight, and he tried to stop a nearby cactus shop from using the same name. <laughs> and this guy, Henry Haight, is kind of semi-famous because he did a lot of Amy Winehouse's tattoos. Okay. Um, and he thought that this person with the cactus shop was kind of passing off with his edgy rock and roll name. But then it went to court and court judge Melissa Clark said, it is difficult to imagine two businesses with two less closely related activities. <laughs> I think it's fair. I can imagine two things less similar than tattoos and cactuses. Like? Um, like a, a waffle maker and then a sort of uh, like a, a Rolls Royce engine firm. <laughs> yeah. And if I had a bit longer, I could, could, could have come up with something really, really different. <laughs> I guess they're both round, aren't they? So it doesn't really work. Yeah. <laughs> Well, (laughs) (laughs) just on that um, very similar note, in 2018, rapper Dr. Dre lost a trademark case to another man called Dr. Dre, who has written books including 20 Things You Might Not Know About the Vagina. Mm. And the judge in that case said that confusion was unlikely as Dr. Dre is not a medical doctor, nor is he qualified to provide any type of medical service. Ah. But they should get together because I would listen to a Dr. Dre rap about 20 things you might not know about the vagina. <laughs> I, to be honest, I think there's quite a lot of that in his raps. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, just on the famous names thing. Um, they're in Australia at the moment. There's a pop-up burger place, which uh, a lot of people trying to not shut down, but get them to change their name. And they're called Pablo Escoburgers. And... <laughs> And when you buy a burger from Pablo Escobar Burgers, you get um, a fake line of white powder. It's like, it's, like a, it's like a garlic flour that's on top of the bun, and then there's a rolled-up $100 note next to it. Um, uh, presumably a fake $100 note. Otherwise. No, it's real. It's real. Um, yeah, yeah, fake. Definitely fake. The passing off thing is quite... It's, like, it's really well established. So, for example, we, we've mentioned on the podcast before, the first ever self-service supermarket, i.e. one where you get a basket and you go around, or a trolley and you go around putting things in, rather than going to a counter and handing over a list. The first ever of those in America was called Piggly Wiggly. And that was a fun novelty name, but it was immediately followed by another firm setting up called Hoggly Woggly. Uh, <laughs> and then Helpy Selfie, and then Savey Wavy, and these are all completely different firms. Oh um, do you know that the Food and Drugs Administration in America, when, it's, when people are coming up with names for new drugs, they run it through a whole bunch of handwriting tests. So they get loads of people in to write the drugs in certain types of handwriting to make sure that they can never be mistaken in certain handwriting for other oh, drugs. Oh, really? Yeah. That's really clever. That's clever. Yeah, very clever. The letter Z appears, in 18, it appears 18 times as often in drug names as it does in other English words. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Because it seems speedy and powerful and memorable, because it's weird. So what's the drug that's got Z in it? Temazepam. Temazepam. Wow. You see? Oh, yeah. Well, that's not really how I feel when I take it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Have you guys heard of Breakfast Mates? No. No. This was a product. This is actually just more a disastrous product than a bad name. So it was launched in 1998. It was Kellogg's Breakfast Mates, and it was an all-in-one package with one serving of cereal, one tiny, tiny carton of milk, and one plastic spoon. And it was designed for people who find normal cereal just too inconvenient and too much of a hassle (laughs) in the morning. That does sound quite a good idea. Yeah, so you get on the train with your Breakfast Mates, and you just pour out your cereal into the poll and then the ma- anyway basically they had neglected to realize that cereal is one of the most easy things to prepare and <laughs> there, there was there was testing which went on and it showed that preparing cereal the traditional way took one second longer than breakfast mates 
It adds up. <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Chuzinski. My fact this week is that the scientist Robert Hooke recorded in his diary every time he had an orgasm. <laughs> so this is... <laughs> You might remember Robert Hooke from school. You learn about Hooke's law. I didn't of... learn about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you actually do learn about Hooke's law of elasticity, which is a veiled oh, reference to that's this. Not... <laughs> <laughs> he was a polymath. He was an unbelievably high-achieving scientist around at the same time as Newton, and he wrote extensive diaries where he recorded every detail of his life, including his orgasms. And he had a sign for when he had an orgasm, which was... The sign of Pisces, which is kind of sort of like a backward C and then a C back to back. And we're, we actually are not 100% sure that it was all of them, but we kind of assume. People have used this as a basis of what his sex drive was. Yeah. yeah. So, for instance, um, in one of his diaries, it says, played with Nell, Pisces sign, hurt small of back. <laughs> <laughs> that could have been Twister, he was could have been. <laughs> Another one, went late to bed... Pisces sign, in sleep, sweat much, and disturbed. Ooh. And then another one that made wormwood wine, Pisces sign, Pisces sign. Whoa! Oi, oi! Robert! It's a good night. Uh, he's wow. just bragging. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, but yeah, he was into it. He had a weird sex life, actually, Hook. So he didn't really have relationships. It was kind of sad. He never had sex with someone who wasn't sort of financially dependent on him or dependent for a home. So he used to have a lot of liaisons with servants and shagged them a lot, like Nell. And then he had this weird relationship with Grace, his niece, who was sent to live with him by his brother, who was sent to live with him when she was 10. And then, but she pretty much turned 16. And he was like, all right, you want to get off? And you want did. a Pisces sign? You want a Pisces sign? <laughs> <laughs> He he was incredible. I mean, he he sort of someone described him um, as Leonardo da Vinci, but without the paintings. Yeah, so, <laughs> which sounds pretty crap, doesn't it? But it was it sort of he worked on all these different fields. Like he invented a microscope, and he used that to to draw incredibly tiny things no one had seen before. Or he designed thermometers. Or he came up with telescopes. Or he he invented the word cell. Do you mean a, a tiny a cell in a body? Which is pretty yeah. cool. He yeah. saw them, didn't he? He looked in his microscope at some cork and he saw these little... He named them after the cells that monks lived in. Mm. Uh, but he didn't know that what they did. He thought they was to send liquid around the body or something like that. So he didn't really know what they were. But he did give the name, which is quite good. He invented some flying machines in his diaries. He drew them. He, he invented the first pressure cooker. Cool. That's yeah. very yeah. Leonardo. Good stuff. He sort of claimed to have flown... He, he experimented with lots of flying machines on the grounds of Wadham College where he went to uni with his friends. He built all these machines. And then he did write in his diary in 1674, uh, told Sir Robert Southerl, his friend, told him I could fly, but I didn't tell him how. Just <laughs> ten cans of Red Bull. <laughs> he was a proper scientist and he did a lot of measurements and stuff like that. And in those days, it was long thought that masturbation was extremely bad for you. And so one reason that he always mentioned it in his diaries is because it was like an ongoing appraisal of his health. So he would be able to see how often it had happened oh. and then he'd be able to see how he was feeling. Because he was a hypochondriac as well. No, no, yes. I'm just conducting an ongoing appraisal of my health. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Mom! <laughs> it's an experiment. <laughs> 
Um, he, when you say he's like Leonardo without the paintings, interestingly, we don't know what he looks like. We have no idea. There were no surviving paintings of Robert Hooke. And that is very surprising because he was such a prominent person. The Royal Society particularly loved him. Every All the scientists, they, they didn't like him as a person, but they respected the hell out of what he did. His books were admired from by peeps through to all the top scientists. And there is a rumor, and it's definitely a rumor, um, that the rivalry that happened between him and Isaac Newton was so great that when Isaac Newton became the um, president of the Royal Society, and at this point, Hooke had died, that he slashed all of the paintings of Robert Hooke yeah. to say, this was not someone we need to... I don't think it's a rumor. I think that's widely accepted to have happened, isn't it? I think that he probably did it. I, yeah, we don't have evidence. I think there was one painting, and he and Newton hated each other. They had a massive rivalry, and Newton did erase him from scientific history for a long time. We all think Newton's the good guy. But, and, what, and then he became president of the Royal Society who happened to have this painting which has disappeared ever since. I mean, you raised him, but all that survived were the orgasms. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. If you get a UV light in the Royal Society, you can see the evidence. <laughs> That's all that's left of him. It's so sad. Um. But yeah, he, yeah he, he sort of preceded Newton in his theory of in a theory of gravity which is a bit vaguer than Newton's but he said that planets were attracted to each other the sun and the planets were attracted to each other he yeah. said gravity was a universal force and then Newton claimed credit uh, his diaries also chronicled his flatulence uh, and it was always in conjunction with the barometric pressure of the area because <laughs> no. he thought that the two might be connected in some way so oh, he yeah. thought if there's lower... He thought if it was low pressure you know it's like today there's a storm coming in everyone would be farting a lot more that it, makes so much sense. It does make sense. Fact, does it? Is it true? Yeah, it does. Because if it's low pressure, you would have thought that, it, you know, your gas goes from an area of high pressure to an area of low pressure out through your rectum. I reckon it's true. <laughs> on the news going, well, we've been getting a lot of reports of flatulence from the area of Cardiff. Um, uh, now it's expect- over to Anna with the weather. <laughs> <laughs> One long fart. Take your umbrella out today. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and he, I mean, he also wrote a lot about, um, he was a hypochondriac. I mean, he said that he suffered from giddiness, indigestion, flatulence, blockages of the sinuses, um, sore eyes, noises in the head, insomnia. And he took all these different medicines, uh, which he wrote all about as well. So he took steel, iron oxide, opium, amber, purgatives. And whenever his medicine gave him constipation, he said he was cheated of a shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great phrase. He was basically a drug addict, though, wasn't yeah, he? he was. Yeah, he was. so ill. He took all the drugs. And in those days, medical drugs were basically all the illegal drugs now, like opium and cannabis and laudanum and stuff like that. There's one other thing he took, because science was in its infancy. He believed a lot of uh, rather dubious stuff. So he noted down that a thing called Stercus Humanum was really good for removing uh, films or mists from the eyes. And Stercus Humanum is dried and powdered human poo. <laughs> apparently you were meant to blow it into your eyes and this would heal your eyes <laughs> wow. does it work? it doesn't work oh, okay. no. <laughs> actually I haven't even checked that but I just think it's important to say <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the moment that don't try this at home was invented for isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> on putting stuff in your eye Samuel Pepys the, probably the world's most famous diarist who was around at the same time and who in fact uh, met Hook he only wrote his diary for nine years. 
I had no idea. It's so weird because he's basically the main source for everything I've ever read about um, the 1600s. And he wrote his diary from 1660 to 1669 when he panicked that he was going blind because he'd been writing it too much and he quit. And he never wrote another word because he said, I'm going blind. Uh, this, the good God prepare me for this awful affliction. I'm on my way out. And then he lived for a further 34 years without <laughs> going blind. Without going blind. Wow, that's amazing. He did write amazing stuff. He was famous, I guess, for the sex stuff. Like if you, there's any time you think of Peeps, it was, he wrote very much about his sex life in it. But here's an entry that I read. So I to bed and in the night was mightily troubled with a looseness. And, feeling for a chamber pot, there was none. I, having called the maid up out of her bed, she had forgot, I suppose, to put one there. So I was forced in this strange house to rise and shit in the chimney twice. (laughs) And so to bed and was very well again. (laughs) How I I wish I had been cheated of a shit. (laughs) Wow. You know you prefaced that by saying he was into the sex stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Uh, um, <laughs> revealed you know, a bit too much from my diary there. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, we need to move to our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that warty comb jellies grow a brand new anus every time they need to defecate. <laughs> How cool is that? So a wart comb jelly is like a jellyfish, but not. It's a different species, um, but they look very similar if you saw it in the ocean. And uh, for, very, for a very long time, we assumed they had an anus. And it's only just recent. This is almost breaking news in science and very exciting news because what they learn is that when it goes to the toilet, this was a guy called Sidney Tam who was studying them very closely with microscopes. Every time they needed the toilet, basically the, the waste bit pushed towards the edge of their body on the inside and this anus grew out of nowhere. And then as soon as it was out, it closed up again, and then they are anusless once again. And because they poo once virtually every hour, they grow 24 anuses every day. <laughs> it sounds like you're pitching to be the new David Attenborough. <laughs> <laughs> but this is very exciting in science because it's a transient anus. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's never before been seen in any of living species that we have. Well, there are, there are a few transient anuses. It's actually. only one of a handful of... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is the first scientific observation of one, though, That's which is true. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. We've, um, we know of a few, because we have mentioned one on the podcast, actually. There's a jawworm uh, who has a transient anus called Haplognathia. And there's also a microscopic creature called Limnognathia, which lives in a hot springs on Disco Island in Greenland. Cool. <laughs> Transient anus on Disco Island. <laughs> nice. Um, th- the researcher who found this is really cool. Um, he works at a lab called Woods Hole, which is interesting. And he, he watched individual watercomb jellies for hours and he, he marked the times of their defecations. And then when the time was exactly right for the next one, he zoomed in with a microscope and he found that he saw the, the wormhole opening, basically. <laughs> wormhole. Well, it is kind of like a wormhole. It's like a stargate. They call it the ring of fusion, don't they? That's, wow. that's the process behind it when the canal... And basically the way they think it happens is that basically it's all fused up and then your anal canal swells and swells and swells and presses against your skin tissue and eventually it creates a little orifice that, that dilates. And then it 
sucks itself back in again. It's yeah. incredible. Uh, Dan said that it's a bit like a jellyfish. It certainly looks like a jellyfish, but yeah. it's not related to a jellyfish in any way, really. It is less related to a jellyfish than we are to a worm. Okay. And that's because about 550 million years ago, the types of animals in the world were worms, sponges, jellyfish, and comb jellies, which is this type of jelly. Uh, and worms kind of turned into all the different animals and mammals oh. and birds and lizards and everything. And the jellyfish and the comb jellies had already split off way before that. It's as different from a jelly as a tattoo parlor is from a cactus emporium. <laughs> <laughs> They are amazing comb jellies, and you, like, you should look them up because they're also kind of beautiful, but the way they move is they have cilia. So you may remember cilia from school as well, those tiny hairs we have in our nose and our lungs, and they use cilia, these little hairs, as oars to propel them along, and they're the biggest things that use them for movement. Uh, they run in, in combs in eight rows on their body, and uh, yeah, they're the largest animals to do it, and the main... Uh, a main jelly is almost six feet wide. So they're quite, some of them can get quite big. Wow. Wow. Yeah. But mostly they're like under 16 inches, quite small. Their eating method is very cool. I think it's not exactly those ones, but there are things called beroid comb jellies because they're a whole family. They're different members of the family. And um, beroid comb jellies, they eat their food before they kill it. So they're just basically a bag floating in the ocean. Oh, wow. And if they spot some prey, which is normally another jelly, um, they just swallow it hot. They just open the, ba- the mouth of the bag, swallow their prey, and then they just keep their mouth shut for as long as they can um, while they're pulling their prey apart on the inside. They actually have mouths that reseal, that basically disappear, like, like zippers they're really? described as. or they, It's like a zip, yeah. So they open their mouths, which their mouths are about half of their body. So it's like a plastic bag opening and they engulf this other jelly, often bigger than they are. And then they zip it shut and they properly (laughs) fuse their mouths back together again until they're ready to eat. Wow. That's amazing. But these particular jellies that we are talking about, the ones with the transient anus, they're called uh, Nemiopsis lady. And they are also known as sea walnuts and a few other things. Now these guys, they eat by again opening their mouth but then when they open it it creates almost like a current you know those rides when you're on like a donut and you're going really slowly down down there so they start that kind of current but it's so so slow that the things that get caught in this current don't even realize there's a current and they just suddenly slowly slowly float into this place and then before they know it they're eaten almost like a conveyor belt that the food just comes in them and it comes in them and they can eat an unbelievable amount of stuff they can eat 10 times their body weight in a day and so they end up basically taking over lakes so there was some taken to the black sea by accident in some bilge water and in less than a decade the population in the black sea had gone got a biomass of 1 billion tons which was 10 times the weight of all the fish that were caught in the world that year Whoa. It's incredible. Wow. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And weirdly, we don't know a huge amount about them. And uh, really, we thought there were far fewer species than there are until recently. And that's partly because they're really hard to study because the moment you attempt to pick them up, they fall apart. So there's... Um, and genuinely, they sort of melt in your hands. So I think there was a spotted comb jelly displayed in California's Monterey Bay Aquarium and it was like w- literally water currents in the aquarium would just tear it in two. So it's very difficult to collect. And this actually, I was reading a piece about this Monterey Bay Aquarium and the jellies that they collected. And the, uh, the b- main marine biologist there was talking about them. And he was also saying that they shimmer. 
So when they have a light shone on them, then they, their little cilia break up the wavelengths of light and they reflect them so they're sort of all rainbow colours. And that actually wouldn't happen in the wild, but it does when we shine a light on them. But the marine biologist at the aquarium who talked about that is called Steve Haddock. Ah, <laughs> nice. So lots of primitive life forms have a, only one uh, hole in their bodies and they have to eat through that and excrete through that. And the reason that we are better than them, and I'm just going to say it, I think we are better than them. <laughs> wow. I'm Jesus. sorry, I'm an egalitarian, but I do think we are, we've got them beat, all right? So the, the reason that you need it is because if you have a through gut, which is what we've got, um, if you don't have that, then you can't eat anything until you've excreted your previous meal. So it's a very inefficient oh, system. So basically, you can't have your lunch until you've pooed out your breakfast. Exactly. Oh. Exactly. Yes, I told you we were better than them. <laughs> <laughs> Just on um, sort of being able to regrow body parts, you know that we can regrow stuff, humans. We can regrow fingertips. And especially mm. children can regrow huge chunks of their fingers. So it, children up to the age of 10 can... So re- it's not an advert for cutting off... <laughs> Yeah, the fingertips Again, of it's, it's that don't try this at home yeah. thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, you know, if they've broken the TV curfew, what else can you do? I suppose if you cut their fingertips off, they won't be able to use the remote control. <laughs> Can't use the remote, exactly. And um, if you cut off the fingertips, or if the fingertips of children under 10 fall off, then... <laughs> As... As is very likely to happen with children. As they do. It's a defence in court. Um, And you don't sew them up. So what doctors (laughs) tend to do is seal them up with flaps of skin. So you've just got a shorter finger at that point. But if you don't do that, then they'll tend to grow back. And interestingly, they grow back, but they don't have a fingerprint, oddly. And also, the way they grow back, if there was any nail left at all, a tiny bit of nail, it will grow back. But it will grow back square rather than oval, which is how our our nails grow. So it grows back Uh, fully square. Oh, I have that. I have, a, I have a slightly square fingertip, and that's because my finger got shut in the door when Did I was a baby. Did you break the... Oh, you didn't break the TV curfew. I didn't curfew. break the TV curfew. <laughs> <laughs> I made sure to bring in all the tellies from the garden right on time. <laughs> We're going to have to wrap up very um, soon. Oh, just one more thing. I'm afraid this is about um, the word... Uh, it's about the word in the, the fact. Um, so there are old... There are old books. There are book scanners which are designed to digitise uh, very elderly books, books from the nineteenth, eighteenth century, that kind of thing, which no one's read, uh, and convert them into e-books so they can be read. Unfortunately, there are some book scanners which cannot tell the difference between the word arms and the word anus. Um, and it literally can't tell its ass from its elbow. Isn't that pleasing? <laughs> so this does make a number of old books quite uh, exciting. So, for example. <laughs> Bertie, dear Bertie, will you not say goodnight to me, pleaded the sweet voice of Minnie Hamilton as she wound her anus affectionately around her brother's (laughs) neck. (laughs) When she spotted me, she flung her anus high in the air. (laughs) Oh boy, she said. She grabbed my anus and positioned my body in the direction of the East Gallery and we started walking. I remember reading the book A Farewell to Anus online, actually, and I really enjoyed it. (laughs) Written by a comb jelly. (laughs) Okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter account. I'm on at Schreiberland. 
Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. James. At James Harkin. And Chazinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep. Or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or our website, no such thing as a fish.com. We've got all of our previous episodes up there, links to our upcoming tour. Thank you so much. We'll see you again. Goodbye. <laughs>